close and long-standing relationship between the U.S. and Canada has hit a rough patch. Can it survive? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. President Trump's bellicose tweets and threats against Canada during renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement threatened to do serious damage to one of the closest friendships between nations in the world today. The talks are hung up on a number of issues, including protections for the automotive, dairy, and steel industries. Not too long ago, it would have been unthinkable for the rhetoric to get this hot, and now relations between the two countries appear to be at a historic low. Today, we'll look at the present and future of that friendship with Ottawa-based attorney Clifford Sosno of the Canadian law firm Faskin. He's a seasoned expert on issues of trade, having appeared before NAFTA and WTO panels, as well as the Canadian International Trade Tribunal. He'll give us a behind-the-rhetoric look at this serious rift between the two countries, assess the chances for repairing it, and speculate on how the prolonged talks for a new NAFTA will play out. So here is my conversation with Clifford Sosno. Clifford Sosno, welcome to the show. Hi. Glad to be on. With regard to the trading relationship between the U.S. and Canada, from the U.S. side recently, we have heard such shocking rhetoric that it makes me wonder and makes me fear for the very state or the very continuation of this relationship. What is the real state of that relationship as you see it right now? Well, it's getting knocked around. But the reality is that trade between Canada and the United States is so integrated and it's so intense that it's it's a baked in relationship and it's going to be really, really, really hard for anybody to disrupt that just by words alone. People are offended by it or not. People accept it as part of a negotiating style or not. But the reality is at a business level, there is such an integrated relationship just because of our own geography, just because of our own cultures that are so similar, political values. Uh, and histories that some difficult rhetoric, some overheated rhetoric on both sides of the border is not going to kill that relationship. What it can do is make people pause and think, where are we at with this relationship? And something that we have been taking for granted, perhaps we no longer take for granted. And it's not just this administration, it's previous administrations as well, just to be politically neutral. There was, of course, the Keystone issue in the past. That was a difficulty in the Obama administration. And Canada getting access to the TPP was not a, a sure thing. Canada had to, in effect, get permission from the Obama administration. And disputes have been going on between Canada and the United States since the 19th century with Salford Lumber. So overheated rhetoric disputes are built into the relationship 
but what is is creating is a sense uh, in Canada, as I've said, that the relationship can no longer be taken for granted, particularly some of the national security moves that the president has been making. And so there's discussion right now about diversification, moving to other business partners, Europe, Asia, in particular Japan, to some extent China, although that's a tough nut to crack, and Latin American countries. So it's that sense of, yes, there's a relationship, it's a fundamental relationship, it's a baked-in relationship between Canada and the United States, but there's also a sense that that access is no longer guaranteed and that relationship can no longer be taken for granted. Well, you seem to be suggesting that there might even be a silver lining with respect to the U.S.-Canada relationship going forward. The fact that we have, especially on this side of the border, taken it for granted for so many years, and maybe this allows us to be more introspective and, and treat it with the respect and the importance that it deserves. Well, certainly in the auto industry, uh, the auto manufacturers and the labor movement in the auto industry, to their credit as well, recognize that it's such an integrated industry that if the president does slap uh, auto tariffs on Canadian imports, and Mexican imports as well of autos and auto parts. It's going to have a serious impact on the U.S. labor market. It's going to have a serious impact on the U.S. auto industry. If Canada or Mexico retaliates, there could be upwards of 600,000 jobs lost in the U.S. auto industry. So we're talking about a deeply integrated industry, and the leaders in those industries seem to know very well, both in management and in terms of labor, that a trade war creates harm on both sides of the border. But larger political issues seem to be coming to the fore in terms of, is Canada really a national security threat, and how are we treating our Canadian partners? But that's feeding into larger political issues, larger midterm discussions. I'm assuming it will have some kind of an impact on the midterm elections, but ultimately I don't think it'll be a conclusive of those elections. Other than automotive, which of course is a major industry being affected here, what other industries stand to be seriously affected by the deterioration of relations between the two countries? Well, the dairy industry is always in the crosshairs of the U.S. and in fairness to the U.S., other countries as well. The U.S. is a large export market for the Canadian dairy industry and for other uh, agricultural industries. And the U.S. looks at Canada as a major market for its supplies of uh, agricultural products. So you're looking at the potential of disruption of a very, very important agricultural relationship. And then the other, of course, is something that nobody really talks about to any great extent, but is on the forefront of a lot of people's minds, uh, at least in the business, is infrastructure. Building pipelines, building roads, building highways, and what a breakdown in the negotiations may mean in terms of, of getting access to each other's markets to, uh, to build infrastructure. Canada has a new uh, infrastructure development bank and is pumping in billions of dollars into new infrastructure projects. If we move into a buy-Canada and buy-U.S. situation of boycotting, then we work into a serious issue of major disruption of, of access to, to infrastructure projects. So it's something that is not on everybody's minds. We talk auto, we talk dairy, but the reality is infrastructure and infrastructure build is equally um, at risk of being disrupted by these kinds of harsh rhetoric and uh, failed negotiations. Back to dairy for a moment. Uh, Canada has come under severe fire from the United States for its milk tariffs, which our president claims are approximately 270%. I wonder, is that misleading or is that the actual fact? He's right that Canada does have what are called technical term of tariff rate quotas. 
under a certain volume, the tariffs were quite low, one or two or three percent, but over that volume, they skyrocketed to 270 percent. At one point, they were even higher than that. The truth of the matter is, is dairy, some call it a cartel, some call it supply management, but the dairy industry in Canada relies on those high tariffs to a great extent in terms of its own industry. I think that it can be fairly set to be implemented to protect that dairy industry. And so the Trump administration does have grounds for arguing that there is concerns about getting access into the Canadian market on dairy. Of course, the U.S. has its own protectionist, if I can put it in those terms, tariffs, for example, as it applies to sugar and a few other products that make it difficult for others to gain access into the U.S. agricultural market. So the headline there is no one is without sin, especially when it comes to agricultural issues, if we consider high tariff barriers a form of sin. But it is clearly in the crosshairs of the U.S. administration. It's clearly something that is important to Wyoming farmers, and therefore it's clearly something that's important to the administration for political reasons, and something that we're going to see continuing to play a, an important role in the national to negotiations. One demand that has been floated by the U.S. administration is that Canada phase out its dairy supply management program entirely. Is that a non-starter for, given the uh, power of Canadian dairy producers? I've heard different things. I've heard Sonny Purdue saying, look, we're not really after dismantling of supply management. We are concerned about our ability to export milk solids into Canada for making yogurts, cheeses, and milk. If that's the main issue and if we can keep it narrow to that one specific issue, then that resolves a major concern for New York farmers, for Wyoming farmers, for other northern tier state concerns about getting into the Canadian market without having to dismantle supply management. But supply management itself, for your U.S. listeners, is one of those taboo subjects that Canadian politicians run under the bed rather than discuss because at play is the farming vote in Canada, and that farming vote tends to be concentrated in certain areas of Canada that typically are very important for re-election purposes. So it is a tough nut to crack. And something that even many Canadians feel is a system that's long outlived its usefulness, but it's very, very, very politically sensitive in the Canadian market. I wonder if in terms of untouchability, the comparison over the U.S. side might be the protection for U.S. sugar producers that has seems to be impossible to, to budge. Every country has their, as you call it, untouchables. Every country has their taboo industries. Every country has their sensitive points where they say we really can't because the domestic political fallout is just too great. And any changes that we make will just have to be incremental. And so the question is for dairy, what's the trade-off? What's the trade-off that's offered? What kind of political cover could be offered? And how much of a demand is created? It's difficult for the Prime Minister of Canada to say, fine, you're right, we're just going to open up the door and you're going to have unlimited and unfettered access for dairy. That would be political suicide for the Prime Minister. And so it becomes a very tough nut to crack from a U.S. negotiating perspective. And from their angle, it's a question of what can we provide in return to get some movement on the dairy industry sufficient for the president to turn around and say to the farmers, New York, Wyoming, whatever, look, we've opened up the market for you. And that formula still hasn't surfaced. So NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, President Trump seemed to think as he came into office that he was going to have a new negotiated NAFTA all wrapped up within a matter of months. Clearly, that has not happened. Uh, what are the big things that are holding up NAFTA 2.0? 
Well, it's interesting, just on that point, back in February of 2017 or 2018, but fairly recently, the Prime Minister and the President met, and the President said, uh, we have a great relationship with Canada, and we just need to tweak a few things here or there. And so that has changed to quite an extent. We've gone from a great relationship and just a few tweaks here or there to Canada being frozen out from the negotiations right now and bilaterals between the U.S. and Mexico, and then perhaps maybe after that, bilaterals between the United States and Canada. So the negotiating dynamic has changed. It's a much more difficult process than anyone would have thought at the beginning. So not only uh, has Trump's uh, assessment of the amount of time to taken to negotiate this agreement proved wrong, but the negotiating dynamics have also been turned on their head. Who would have thought that the administration would have thought that it would be easier to get an agreement with Mexico than it would be to get an agreement with Canada? But the major issues, at least politically, that we're talking about are the sunset clause, one where the president gives himself the authority to terminate the agreement if the president determines that the NAFTA is not in the best interests of the United States in terms of its own economy. And making that assessment every five years with the essentially termination of the deal unless the president determines otherwise. That's been reported to be a deal breaker by Canada. It's been reported to be a deal breaker by Mexico, although interesting, Lopez Obrador, the incoming president of Mexico, is saying we can work a deal and we can negotiate a deal. The previous Mexican administration said that was a red line that uh, just couldn't be crossed. So who knows if that's just a negotiating tactic or not, but that certainly is swallowing up a lot of oxygen. The heart, I think, of the negotiations is the auto tariffs and the auto content rules. The president wants desperately, I would think, in terms of the upcoming midterm elections, and for his own presidential prospects to be able to say, I actually increased the amount of U.S. content that's going into the production of automobiles. And I think he's moving in that direction right now. The North American content is 62%. The president wants to move it to 75%, with at least 40 of that percent to be in the United States. And he seems to be moving in that direction, seems to be making headway in that regard. So autos has been a major sticking point. I would say that there's a lot of smoke, there's a lot of noise. But really, at the technical level, uh, I would suggest that things are moving towards some kind of an agreement on autos, including increase in labor standards and also increase in, in wages paid to workers in Mexico. The president wants at least a $16 an hour floor. And then, of course, we've talked about dairy as being an issue. And I would say that those three, dairy, sunset clause, and autos, have been sucking up an enormous amount of oxygen. I would have thought the dispute settlement mechanism for managing anti-dumping disputes, the president wanting to get rid of that system, Canada fervently wanting to hold on to it, would have been a source of friction, would have been a source of heat between the two of them. That doesn't seem to be the case, perhaps because autos and dairy have taken up so much negotiating space. So I would say those three seem to be the major pillars of conflict at this stage of the game. There's other secondary ones, IP protection, the perennial concern for the U.S. government. There's a concern that Canadian IP rules are not stringent enough. And then, of course, as I say, the anti-dumping system is also a source of heat between Canada, at least, and the United States. Mexico doesn't seem to be really concerned about that. At this point, what do you think of the prospect of the United States 
ending up with two separate bilateral pacts, one with Mexico and one with Canada? I would rate that low. Just legally speaking, I'm trying to get my head around how that would work. It would mean that to have two separate negotiate uh, deals, the president would say, we're terminating the NAFTA. And then once we terminate the NAFTA, we'll have separate agreements with Mexico and we'll have separate agreements with Canada. Because it's not clear to me how you can continue on having the NAFTA. I guess you could. And then have a separate agreement with Mexico and as between Mexico and the United States, freeze that part of the NAFTA that deals with the relationships between them. But just me describing that to you, I'm sure, is making you think, well, how would this work legally? And then what's Congress's role in all of this in terms of the NAFTA Implementation Act and does that have to be repealed? And so it becomes a very difficult, and I would call it a legal mess. It's easier to be said politically than to actually do it legally. So do I think it would ever see the light of day? No, I don't. Do I think it's a negotiating tactic? Yes, I do. The administration in any event has said, we're going to focus on Mexico first, and then we'll go to Canada next. And so uh, the Mexican-U.S. negotiations right now is key to making an assessment as to whether or not we are going to have an after deal. But I would rate it as a low probability. So to really put you on the spot here and ask you an impossible question, just because everything is in such a state of chaos, what is your best guess as to when we might actually have a concluded new NAFTA 2.0? Well, I've always said, even when people were talking about this back in April, before the press of the 232 on autos, that we wouldn't see a deal until 2019. And I'm still a firm believer that we're not going to see a deal until 2019. And there's so many variables that are taking place that might make it even longer. The truth of the matter is Canada is going into elections in 2019. And so it's going to slow down the negotiation process in some ways make it even more difficult. The U.S. is going into midterms and it's going to be difficult to be seen to make any major concessions in the negotiations, even to have an agreement in principle going into the midterms that may hurt the Republican Party. The truth is as well that the Democrats are supportive substantively on many of the issues that the president is advocating in terms of increasing content and autos, better dairy access, increasing wage standards in Mexico. What the Democrats are uncomfortable with is the tone. The Democrats also are uncomfortable with the national security strategy. So what you could see in that situation of, for example, a Democrat-led House is a lengthening of the NAFTA negotiations. So you add on the elections, you add on a potential Democrat House. Congress, in any event, will need to do its own work to examine any agreement, even agreement in principle. And you add all that together, and it becomes very difficult to say that we're going to have an agreement signed, sealed, and delivered this year. I just don't see how that's possible. Well, despite the chaos, despite the mess, I think, Clifford Sosno, you have done an excellent job of bringing some clarity to a very muddy issue. So uh, I thank you for helping us to understand where we are on this issue. Thanks so much for being with us. All right. Have a good day. That was my conversation with attorney Clifford Sosno talking about the future of the fractured friendship between the U.S. and Canada. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content 
including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.